If you are new with us, we are in a series on the life of King David right now, a bigger series on the kings of Israel. And uh, so far, David has been the hero. David has been described as a man after God's own heart. And if you are a believer in Jesus, whether you are a man or a woman, a student or a child, um, there's something about this phrase that should resonate with us, where we say, truly, I want to be a man, a woman, a child, a student who is after God's own heart. But I want to make something really, really, really clear. If you are going to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, will you be sinless? You can say no. You can respond, right? No. Will you, at times, epically fail? I got to tell you, drives me nuts what I, as a man, as a husband, as a dad, am capable of. Um, it drives me nuts what my friends, my friends who love the Lord and pursue him in those moments, what they are capable of. David, so far, has battled tons of enemies, and he's won. Remember, he stood before the ginormous, magnanimous Goliath, right? Remember that? Uh, David uh, fought uh, in a sense, King Saul, he fought the Ammonites, the Philistines. Uh, he has had battles with his wives and his children. And this morning, David is going to encounter the greatest enemy of his life, bar none. His greatest enemy is himself. It's himself. And I want to just be really kind to you on the front end, and I want to encourage you with something. The greatest problem in your life is you. Welcome to the Village Church if you're new with us. <laughs> but I would like to make it clear to you that the greatest problem in your life is not your spouse, it is not your kids, it is not your job, it is not the bully at school, it is not the person who has made fun of you, it is not the illness that you are wrestling through right now, it is not your physical pain, it is you, your heart. You are the greatest problem in your life. The greatest threat to you is you. And if you understand the depth of your sin and what you're capable of in your hearts, you should be giving a resounding amen. Because when that person is mean to you, when that person makes your life difficult, right, does that demand that you sin in response? No. We sin because the greatest enemy that we have is ourselves. I'm looking at you as your pastor and saying the greatest enemy that I have, the most frustrating person in my life is me. I wrestle with me daily, and I'm so aggravated at what I am truly capable of, even as a man, even as a pastor, even as a dad, even as a, a husband. And this morning, if you take away one thing, I want you to understand that you are your greatest enemy. Now, James 1, 14 to 15, it's at the top of your notes. If you'd open up your notes, you can read that. Um, this is a verse that um, I think just so beautifully outlines um, the problem and the challenges that King David is going to face and the problem that, honestly, you and I face every day. Here's what James 1, 14 to 15 says. But each person, is anyone excluded? No, so this is you, okay, talking about you. You are tempted when you are lured and enticed by beautiful women? Is that what it says? No. By your spouse, your enemy? No. By that thing you have to have at the mall? Anybody? No. Right. The big house? Anybody? No. What is it? Your own desire. Where's the real problem? It's in me. It's in you. Then, this desire, 
this issue of our heart, when it has conceived, notice the conception birth metaphor that's coming here, when it is conceived, it grows inside and it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth, everybody say it together with me, death. What does our sin bring forth in our souls, in our lives, in our communities, in our families? Say it with me, death. Is this what you want? No, I I pray, Jesus, kill me, okay? Transform me more and more into the image of Jesus. Because when there's less me, there's a lot less death and a lot more life. Jesus, take these parts that are such a huge threat to myself and to my family and to my friends and my church and, and will me down, break me into pieces because I am a danger to everyone around me. And if you can't step back and say that, if you still think that your spouse or the person next to you is the greatest threat in your life, you have fundamentally missed the whole point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are your greatest problem. Now, we're going to go into verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, and here's what we find, the lure. In the spring of the year, notice these words, the time when kings go out to battle. So if you're a king, where are you supposed to be? Out to battle. David sent Joab. Should David have been sending Joab? No. Joab should have been going with David and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But catch these words. But David remained at Jerusalem. Where is David supposed to be? On the battlefield. And when is temptation going to come for David? It's going to come when he is bored with the wrong people and with the wrong place. When he is bored with the wrong people and the wrong place. Can I get an amen on that one? Anybody, right? I always say this. When dudes are bored, we do dumb things. Right? And every wife said, (laughs) David is supposed to be in battle, not bored. David is supposed to be on the battlefield, not in his bedroom. David is supposed to be with his boys, not with his butlers. Okay? At every moment, David is in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people doing the wrong thing. And God and the authors of 2 Samuel want to make it sure everybody here knows David is supposed to be on the battlefield. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, being a bum, and he was walking on the roof of the king's house, bored, not in battle, that he saw from the rooftop a woman bathing. Well, she just wasn't any woman. I mean, this is, the woman was not just beautiful, but very beautiful. Go back to James 1 at the top of your notes. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Is the naked woman the problem? No. What is the problem? David's heart. You catch this? That's the problem. Now, I do want to make sure that you understand this, and there are points of this sermon that get a little stronger and a little more maybe risque, but um, I want to share with you what I believe is the most powerful lure for a man that elicits his own flesh and his own desires. The most powerful lure for a man is a beautiful, optional, naked woman. A beautiful, optional woman naked woman. It is profound to me as I look back on my life. I remember the first time I saw a naked woman who was not in my family. I was in kindergarten at a t-ball practice, and there were three guys, and our parents were all late. 
And we were sitting, and there's this trash can. And inside the trash can were pornographic magazines. And inside of us, all of us little boys, we were insatiably curious. We had never seen anything like this before. I didn't grow up in a home with pornography in my home in any way, shape, or form. But I look back on that moment, and I remember the first time that I saw a naked woman's body that was not in my family. It is vivid and striking. I remember the second time. I was in about fourth grade, and my next-door neighbor, or my friend's next-door neighbor, he watched his house and let out his dog. And so he said to me, hey, I've never seen these things before, but our next-door neighbor has these magazines. You need to check these out. And so he went in to let out the dog. We went into the basement, and we just saw boxes, and I saw the top of a box, and then we heard the neighbor come home from upstairs. <laughs> you know what you do at that point? You freak out. When you're in fourth grade and you're in somebody's house that you don't know and you're supposed to be watching their dog, but you're in their basement where you have no business being whatsoever. And I vividly remember this moment. And uh, he, as soon as we heard him go upstairs, man, we ran out of that house as fast as we possibly could because we knew, we knew that whatever we were going after, there was something not right about it. I remember being in seventh grade and we'd go to Chris's house for all-nighters. And we would spend the night and there was a bunch of guys in the class. And I remember um, he had HBO back in the days of cable and uh, all of the guys would wait up until about 11.30, and I did not know what they necessarily were waiting for. This wasn't my world. And I sat there, head underneath the blanket the whole time, knowing that if my mom found out about this, she was going to kill me. But the Spirit of God was inside of me and was telling me, this isn't for you. But I remember the pull and the strength as a young boy of wanting to watch this and to see this and observe it and relish in this. I remember there was something about it that lured me into it. Now, where was the problem? In me. In me. Now, I was a kid. I didn't know. I didn't know what I was working through, what I was wrestling with. I didn't understand all of this. Should I? Should I have not? That's, I, I didn't know. But here's what I knew at a young age, at a very young age. Um, I remember vividly every single encounter that I had uh, with a naked woman through pornography. I remember every one of them. And this is the strength that the, that the optional naked woman has over a man's eyes. It's powerful. It is so powerful. And David finds himself here. Now, here's the problem, right? Um, Bathsheba, we're going to find, is doing what she should have been doing. She was doing nothing wrong, okay? The problem is David has a massive heart issue, and that heart issue is going to get on full display. We had a um, professor at Moody Bible Institute, and he's still there, Dr. Winfred Neely. He got all the pastors in front of us, and here's what he said. I'll never forget this, and uh, in this big, booming voice, this awesome voice. Um, Men, when you, <laughs> you are, are each one decision away from ruining your ministry, your marriage, and your life. You are one decision away from ruining your ministry, your marriage, and your life. And I love that. I never forgot that. And I remember in that moment, I was thinking, no, I'm at least 50 decisions away. And he said, you have no idea the power of those moments. You have no idea. Protect yourself. Guard yourself. And I thought to myself, no, I'm 50 decisions away. And he made it clear to me, you are one decision away from being lured by your own desires into something that will destroy your ministry, your marriage, and your life. David lacked, I think, three things that, particularly as a married man, um, he could have had that would have helped him say no to this. Number one is a healthy relationship with one wife. What, what was the command to kings of Israel? Were they supposed to have numerous wives and build a harem and build treaties by collecting wives? And Is that what they're supposed to do here? No. You're supposed to have 
one wife. You're not supposed to have multiple wives. And so David has already found himself in a position where he is sexually compromised in this area of his life. David is supposed to have a battle to fight. Purpose. A man without purpose is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous thing. And David stayed home. He did not follow through on God's calling and purpose for his life. And what happens? He finds himself bored. I think the third thing is the most important, and this applies to everybody, because you may not have the first or the second in line, but if you don't have the third, you're toast. You're absolutely toast. An insatiable desire for God. An insatiable desire for God. So here's what we see over the trajectory of David's life. Each of these has been on a diminishing trajectory. A diminishing trajectory. This didn't just happen. These are the cumulative effect of decisions that um, accrued over time. And what we find here is that David, the man after God's own heart, is in a season of spiritual decline, of moral decline, and all of this is coming full circle. Now what's interesting is you're going to read 2 Samuel on your own sometime, and you're going to expect that this book is written chronologically. I just have good news for you. It's not written chronologically. When the author put this book together and put all these stories together, his greatest concern was not telling you necessarily the order of every single event, but he's weaving together for you a picture of David's heart after God um, in all of its multifaceted aspects. Uh, He's showing that the heart after God has moments of high highs and low lows, but at the end of the day, we're going to see where the heart after God lands. I wish that David would have remembered the promise of Job. Um, Guys, if you've never heard this, I want you to uh, write this, these verses down, and go back to them. Job 31, 1 to 4. Job says, I have made a covenant, a solemn promise, a solemn vow with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? How could I gaze at a woman with lust? And then he says, what would be my portion from God? What do I have to get from this? What would God do for me above, uh, God above, and my heritage from the Almighty on high? And here's what God, he says God would do for him if he violates this covenant with his eyes. Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all of my steps? Like there's this idea that happens in a man's mind that when we look on a woman with lust that God isn't paying attention, Right? that he's somehow not fully there caring what we're doing. Like, it's as if we just kind of block him out for a season and we say, oh, it's just this. It's just that. It's no big deal. He's never intervened before. I'm just going to gaze. I'm just going to look. And then Job steps back and says, I've made a covenant, a promise, a solemn vow with my eyes that I will honor the women and my wife and the way I process them. And the reason Job has to make a solemn vow is because it's easy? No is because it's actually a struggle for Job. He's human. He's flesh. He's just like every one of us. And this is what you do when you have a problem, is you make promises and you build hedges of protection around your life, and you remind yourself God sees and cares about everything. Not just that I do, but everything I think. He bites. Verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba? But listen to the qualifiers. The daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. At this point, I shout at the text. And I'm like reading this by myself. I'm like, David, don't do it. Do you ever feel like that? You're like, when I, when I read, uh, when I read uh, Eve in the garden, I'm like, don't bite. Don't take it. It's going to kill you. It's going to kill everybody. It's going to be really terrible. But I, I already know what he did, you know. Uh, 
Joseph, Genesis 39, 9, Potiphar's wife comes to him and she is trying to lure him, right? And I love what he says. He says this, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you hear that in that moment where that lure is happening, he has the option to bite, but here's what he understands. I live before God and no one else. How could I possibly do this to God? to God. He is my Lord and my Savior. I care more about what he thinks than what anything anyone else in this world thinks. I care more about pleasing him than pleasing myself. How could I possibly do this to my God? I want you to notice four things about verse three. Number one, Bathsheba comes from wealthy, prominent blood. Uh, Uriah is one of David's 37 mighty men. Ahithophel was the chief counselor of David, who was the, um, I believe, the grandfather of one of these guys. I can't remember exactly, but, um, and what we know is that um, very clearly because of who these men were, they were loyal to David. They were very near to David. Um, They were um, uh, fighting for David. Uh, They defended David. They prayed for David. I mean, these are guys who are incredibly loyal to David. Now, because of who she was married to and related to, Here's what you need to know about location. David is sitting in this palace, and about one to 200 feet away is where Uriah would have lived. And so she is on the top of her roof. It's basically as far as maybe myself to this door or myself to the back, to the entrance of the church, okay? We're not, I mean, I think sometimes we think that she's like a mile off and he's got binoculars and a telescope or something crazy. Like, she's close enough that he can actually see her and discern her beauty and want it. And so there's, there's a nearness here. The third thing that you should notice is that no longer is David being driven by hesed, covenantal, faithful, loyal love to God in response to what God has done for him, but lust, but lust, the desires of his own heart. And four, what I love about this is that the Lord gives David, and I would contend every one of us in those moments of lust, whether it's sexual or otherwise, he gives us all the reminders we need whether it is the Spirit of God inside of us, whether it is the community of God around us, whether it is the Word of God that has been so clearly taught and trained and put into our minds, whether it is the teaching and the training of moms and dads and mentors, whether it is that moment just before you're about to bite where the Lord sends someone into your life and says, hey, maybe you shouldn't. And I love this. The men go before him, and I'll summarize what I think they said. David, this is the wife of one of your mighty men. Okay, this is the wife of Uriah. David, this is one of the 37 men in all of Israel who has committed himself to your joy, happiness, protection, to follow you wherever you would go. Would you really do this to the wife of one of your mighty men? David, this is the daughter of one of your mighty men, Eliam. David, do you even understand? This isn't just some object. This is somebody's wife and daughter. Not just that. This is the wife and daughter of men who have committed their lives to your joy, happiness, protection, safety, and kingship. David, this is the granddaughter of your most trusted counselor, Ahithophel. David, this this is not just some girl, right? This is somebody you know. Now, this time, David also is not like just a spring chicken in his 20s, right? David is probably in his 40s, 50s. Okay? This is why the text is not paying so much attention to chronology as it is David's heart and stories that illustrate the trajectory of what's going on in his life and who he is. I think David and us are tempted to believe a few lies before we bite. Lie number one, I deserve this. Some people actually think this. Like, I have a right to this. 
Number two, God's never punished me before. Why would he start now? How are we supposed to internalize the patience of God? It's permission to keep sinning. (laughs) Opportunities for repentance. God won't care. It's no big deal. It's just sex. It's just this. It's just that. He really doesn't care. Are these things that big of a deal to him? I don't care if I get caught, if they find out, you fill in the blank. Some people literally don't care. They know it's wrong, and they're so blinded by their own desire, their own lust, that they've ceased to care what other people think, and most importantly, what God thinks. And I think number five, the most dangerous of these, I'll repent later. In that moment where the Holy Spirit is provoking your brain, and you say, last time, last time, last time. This is the last time. This is the last time. No, this time it's the last time. No, this time for real, it's the last time. R.C. Sproul um, said this, other than the fall in the garden, this is the most disastrous, disastrous event in all of biblical history. Over the next two weeks, we're gonna watch the devastation of what David is about to do unravel before him in history. Verse four, so David, pay attention to the verbs here, sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. So when we think about this story of David and Bathsheba, right, we think about this long, drawn-out event. The event, okay, is summarized in one verse. That's it. One verse. A couple verbs, one verse. David, here's what David did. Sent, took, lay. That's it. Bathsheba came, returned. Arrived, left. Those are all the verbs. There's no passion, no drawn-out love story. This isn't the notebook, right? This isn't a love scene. This is lust. She wasn't wooed. There was no flowers. There was no romance. There was no candy. There was no handwritten letters. There was no orchestra or band or music or CD player or MP3 on the background making the mood right and candles. I mean, this is not glorious. It is simple. It is to the point. It is lust, and it's done. That's it. I imagine when she arrived, what did David say to her? Would you like to have sex? Why don't you come on in, right? What, what do you say? She knows exactly what it's about. When you're a woman in this time, and you arrive at the king's chambers in his bedroom, you know exactly what's expected of you. Some people have contended that David raped Bathsheba. The text gives no allusion to that. She, she may have. The text seems to imply that whatever was going on, she didn't resist. Some people say Bathsheba was conniving, and she was doing this on purpose because she had an agenda. We'll never know. But what's interesting is who she is and what she did and what her motives were don't matter because who's the point of the story? David. And who's the problem? David. doesn't matter. Now, there's this little funny line here um, that says, uh, verse 4, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And uh, this is actually really important, and this is a little nugget for you to consider. Um, Some people are thinking, so why does the author just talk about her menstrual cycle right here and just kind of throw it in? And uh, there's a reason for it, actually, that becomes really pertinent to the story. And so, guys, um, we're just going to blow your mind for a minute. So the law, if you're a Jew, um, made it a a rule. You're not allowed to have sex with your wife when she's on her period. And also for seven days after that. 
So it could be about a 10 to 14 day period of time throughout a month where sex between a husband and a wife was forbidden. Now, on the eighth day, what the woman had to do was take a ritual bath called a mikvah. And this is what Bathsheba was doing. She's not called Bathsheba because she's taking a bath. That's just her name. It's just a coincidence, okay? But um, she's taking a mikvah, right? So here's what she's doing. Her taking this mikvah is actually a statement of her following the law and trying to make herself clean, okay? So David sees somebody following the law. Now, here's the crazy thing about this, right? Why would God forbid sex for that much time? Because guess what happens around 8 to like 10, 12 days after a woman's period? She is the most fertile she could possibly be. So you know what God did in his infinite genius? He wanted marriage and sexuality to be connected to procreation so much so that he prohibited sex for that 10 to 14 day period so that when they came together, it was almost inevitable that they would make babies. Isn't that crazy just to think about how God orchestrated in the law even their sex life so that he could get the desired outcomes that he wanted? Blew my mind when I first got that one under my head. So guys, you go process that one in women. It's, it's a little crazy. But he's not just throwing in this little one-liner there because he's bored or the author is some kind of issue. Um, he wants you to know that this woman is fertile. And does David know that? Everybody say yes. Yes. Does David know the most probable outcome of this event if he is going to pursue this woman? Answer, you better believe it. But does lust and your own desire blind you from all wisdom? Oh my goodness. It's yes. Number three, the pain. The woman conceived and she sent and she told David she's got three words in the whole story. I am pregnant. That's it. What do you say when you're David? Well, here's what David does. Because maybe at this moment, he's not a man after God's own heart, is David does what a king and a warrior and a general does. He strategizes. How can I get myself out of this? Haddon Robinson is a a world-renowned preacher and a mentor to our very own Mike Boyle for a season, and an uh, amazing um, preacher. And he tells the story of um, a man who's in ministry, left his family for his secretary, um, left his kids, repented years later, came back. And here's a quote from that man. Here's what the man said. The man who walks out of fellowship with God walks on the edge of an abyss. The man who walks out of fellowship with God walks on the edge of an abyss. James 1, 14 to 15, let's read this again. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then that desire, when it has conceived. And at this point, Bathsheba has conceived. At this point, um, David's lust, his anger, his lack of, we'll call it character, Uh, The sin inside of him has conceived and it is going through a gestation period where it is growing. And this is what I think the author wants you to know is that in David's body, the sin is growing and it's growing and it's growing and when it gives birth, it's going to be death. And David is giving birth to a wicked, evil, evil sin. Number four is the panic. The desire when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Verse 6, 2 Samuel 11. So David sent word to Joab. Immediately he strategizes. He finds out that she's pregnant. Send me Uriah the Hittite. 
and Joab sent Uriah to David. Nobody really knows. Joab doesn't seem to know what's going on. Uriah doesn't seem to know what's going on. Everybody's kind of in the dark except for David. You know the servants are chatting and they're talking about it because they know what happened and servants are never quiet. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Job was doing and how the people were doing and how was the war going? I mean, it's this line of questions. Like, does David care about how the war is going? Does David care about how Joab is doing? Uriah, tell me about your day. You feeling good? Everything good? All right, all right, all right. Let's get down to the point, right? There's actually something I want to talk to you about. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, this is a euphemism for um, go make love to your wife right? Because they'd walk around, their feet were dirty, but he's saying, go home. You've been away from your wife for a season. And what's David's hope? That the baby, the child of David and Bathsheba can be covered up and everybody will think it's Uriah's. So he says to him, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Don't you love David's overcompensation, right? This is great. Like if I'm Uriah, I'm thinking, what is going on here? Like this guy is Like, something is awry here. And we don't ever really know if Uriah knew or didn't know. We guess he did not know. But here it says in verse 9, But Uriah did not go home, but he slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, he calls him back in and he says, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Listen to what Uriah says. This is like, motivated by the Holy Spirit of God to poke David's heart. This is another one of those warnings. David, stop what you're doing. And here's what he says. Uriah said to David, the ark, the presence of God and Israel and Judah, they dwell in booths, like tents. And my Lord Joab, the general who's out there fighting your battle, by the way, David, and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, actually his soul is dying, metaphorically speaking, right? Um, I will not do this thing. And it's almost like he looks at him and says, how could I go down to my wife when my boys, when my men are on the battlefield? But you, you you'll sit here in your high, high horse. You'll sit here in your room, in your bed, while we're all fighting and sleeping in camps and tents, right? You'll go sleep with my wife and eat my food and take my stuff. I wouldn't even go do that because it's called integrity, David. It's called integrity, And apparently, um, David is not the hero anymore. Who's the hero of this story? Uriah. Uriah is. He has no idea. All Uriah is doing is being faithful, right? That's all he's doing. David, always the strategist, verse 12. David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. Which he actually doesn't. Tomorrow he gets him drunk, which we'll see. So Uriah remained at Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. I mean, David just can't win. So number five in your notes, the death. The desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Here's verse 14. We don't find just the death of Uriah, but there's also collateral damage of which David seems to have no emotional concern for in any way, shape, or form. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, a death warrant, by the way, for Uriah, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. I mean, Uriah has no idea he's carrying his own death warrant. Do you see how David's lust has blinded his mind? The thing that, I mean, could you imagine 
the man after God's own heart, the man who keeps his covenant faithful love to Jonathan and to Mephibosheth, the one who um, pursues the ark of God, the one who writes these beautiful psalms about wanting the presence of God and better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. This guy is doing this, setting up and coordinating the murder of one of the most faithful men uh, that has ever served him after he's cheated or, or, or taken his wife, impregnated her, and tried to hide that. I mean, this guy is just, wow, the depth of the problems are huge here. Verse 15, in the letter, David wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Go down to verse 26 with me, and I want you to notice how Bathsheba is described. Three times in one verse, she is not referenced at all by her connection to David, but first and foremost, who is she? She's the wife of Uriah. Here's what it says. When the wife of Uriah, right, do you see the author is intending to make a point to you? heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. I mean, it's just, okay, we get the point, author, it's her husband. Lament lasted seven days. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Like that. I mean, as soon as it's over, he takes her in, and everybody knows, right? Everybody knows. Did he hide anything? Nothing. Everybody knows. But I think this is the line right now, this last verse in here, that is the most important that you need to get. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We are our greatest enemy. We are the greatest challenge in our life, especially when we don't care what the Lord thinks about who we are becoming and what we're doing. And the author steps back and he just wants you to know this thing displeased God and he is the only one that matters. Now this is going to be a to be continued. I'm going to leave you in suspense. I'm going to give you four just brief so what's. Maybe three. Number one, who is your greatest enemy? I am. Well, not me. You're your greatest enemy. I'm hopefully not your greatest enemy. Number two, this serves as a warning. Next week, we're going to watch this warning come full circle. But I want you to listen to the trauma of David's soul as he records a psalm about his experience during this season. And I want to contend with you that if you move into your own desires and you fulfill them, okay, this is the emotional relational state between you and God that you should expect. Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my Bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Anybody want that, by the way? Anybody want to feel so much guilt that you feel like your soul and your bones are wasting away? For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Like if the Holy Spirit of God is in you and there is this mass of sin on your life, will the hand of God press on you slowly and zap you of your spiritual energy? You better believe it. Why? Because he's bad? 
No, because all this thing will do is kill you because sin, after it's conceived, brings forth death. And God doesn't want that. He wants life. And then he says this, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the sin, the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everybody who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. And the day you die, in the day you face judgment, when you stand before God and the rush of great waters come over you, you will not be able to reach your hand out and come to Jesus and repent in that moment. Okay? Now is the time. Right now. Don't wait for next week's to be continued. You already know what to do. Okay? You already know what repentance looks like. Next week is too late. Today is the day. And then he goes on. I will, res- I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with a bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Don't be a mule. Don't just stick in this and be stubborn and be ashamed and afraid and, and too afraid to do what the right thing is. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but, but if you'll be a David and bring your iniquity before the Lord, but steadfast love, said, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Finally, last takeaway. I think what makes the Bible so unbelievable, uh, actually I would just say believable, but unbelievable, uh, and credible, is that it just tells the horror stories of all of these leaders. I mean, we look at David, right? As Christians, we're like, David is a man after God's own heart. Look at his poetry. But like, these are the kind of stories that the Bible tells about all of its heroes. Um, The only true hero in the Bible without blemish is Jesus. That's it. Everybody massively falls short of the glory of God. There's no pedestals. Adam failed, Noah failed, Abraham failed, Moses failed, Joshua failed, Elijah failed, David failed, the disciples failed. Everybody fails but Jesus. All of the heroes fall short of the glory of God but Jesus. I love this. And the Bible from beginning to end just wants to make it clear to you. Every one of us will fail. Even the heroes fail. But you know who will never, ever fail? Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ who proved himself to be fully God and fully man through his sinless life, his atoning death on the cross. God the Father said, this is my son, fully God, fully man. Raised him from the dead. David can't do that. As awesome as David is, he can't do that. He ascended into heaven, and guess what? He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And the whole point of all this is it brings us, it makes us look in in the mirror and look at our own sin, but it also reminds us that we have a Savior, that even the greats, even David, needed a Savior. And so, Ville Church, I love, I love, I love, I love that despite our imperfection, Jesus was perfect for us. And I cannot leave this to be continued without looking you in the face and saying, I don't care how much you've messed up. If there is redemption for a manipulating, lying, adulterous murderer like David, there's redemption for you. Amen? Amen? Is there any sin that you can commit that he cannot forgive? No. You come to Jesus, who was perfect for you. Let's pray and close in worship. Father, thank you for David's life. I thank you for all these highlights and these moments of faithfulness. But God, I just truly want to say thank you to you. Thank you to you for revealing the fact that he is not God. He is not perfect. He is a broken man. Lord, what a reminder to us that no matter how righteous we might be today, um, that we very easily can land in a place on a spiritual trajectory of walking away from you. 
Lord, would you preserve us? Would you keep us? Would you protect us from ourselves? Lord, I confess to you that I am the greatest problem in my life. My greatest enemy is my own flesh. It is me. It is my broken heart. God, I know that there are many brothers and sisters who just give a hearty amen to that confession. And so God, thank you for giving Jesus who fully 100% covered every one of my sins and my iniquities so that somehow I can stand before you though struggling as righteous, as a son. I just want to say thank you for that. I thank you that because Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I don't have to pay for my sins. I thank you now that I have full access, and we do, and we can sing to you and worship despite our stupidity. God, I pray for the, man, the men and the women in this room who are about to do something stupid. Would you use your spirit, your word, this message, this church, the foolish things of this world to remind them of the death that awaits for them? And for Lord, those who are in the middle of it, would you use the same things to draw them to a place of repentance? We love you. We worship you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen.